Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Up Podcast, episode number 94, presented by the Seven Line. We're going over the series against the Colorado Rockies. A little bit of snow, a little bit of a doubleheader, game three on Sunday. The Mets end up winning this series pretty pretty easily, honestly. It really wasn't that crazy of a series. It wasn't too tough in Colorado, but we're going to go over everything that happened in this series, as well as preview the next series going up against the San Francisco Giants. And we also have another mailbag episode, so we're going to take some viewer questions from Twitter and answer them. If you want to have a chance to be featured in the next viewer mailbag episode, make sure you're following us on all our social media, at MetsUp. You'll be able to find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube channel if you want to watch the video version of what you're listening to right now. That's the place to do it. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, you'll be able to find us. Drop us a rating, drop us a review. It really does help us out. And without further ado, let's bring in my co-host, James Chiato. James, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Funny to see the Mets this weekend in Colorado in the snow and a blizzard while we've had a legitimate heat wave in New York City. Did you see the snow that was on the field? Did you see the preparation that they had just to get the double header in, that was insane how much snow landed in Colorado. I was with one of my friends yesterday out on the town. He's a big skier, and he was showing me videos from Breckenridge, Vail, Aspen, one of the mountains in Colorado that's like near Denver, but not in Denver, but one of the ones that's like within shot of Denver. And they did one of those time lapse snow things of like just the day of snow on Friday. It was like a whole entire foot of snow. It was ridiculous. Oh, dude. I mean, I saw them like working on the field before the game. First off, it's crazy that they hand shovel almost all the snow because the Coors Field uh, grounds crew doesn't want to ruin the field. So they almost hand shovel everything along with they only had one tractor that seemed to be able to push the snow back and forth, which that seems like just sheer incompetence on the Rockies side. And to be fair, it is the Rockies organization. Dick Monfort is their owner. So that's kind of to be expected. But to their credit, they got the field ready, and it honestly looked like it never even snowed there. The field looked beautiful despite insane weather that happened just 12 hours before. Not even 12 hours before. It was snowing there still Saturday morning, and they were still able to get both of those games at double header off completely unfeathered, which, again, very impressive from the crew. Also, that you kind of need to do that. You can't really expect machinery to work on a baseball field like that because if you are ripping up grass underneath snow, you'll you'll ruin the field even worse than the snow being on it, like, you have to do that. I'm glad the Rockies, one of the few teams, probably the only teams in baseball that actually has to deal with legitimate snow removal, like Rockies, Minnesota. I guess that's it. Maybe Chicago certain times of year. They're saying they're one of the few fields in Major League Baseball that has heated ground, that the ground is able, they're able to control the temperature of the ground because they didn't want it to go below or above 65 degrees 
uh, Fahrenheit because that would ruin the soil of the field. There was a lot of soil talk this weekend on the SNY broadcast, and honestly, I'm here for it. Well, now we know why Dick Montfort has no money to spend in free agency every year. He's got Chris Bryant, former top draft picks, and warm soil. Like, we got, we can't ruin this. Dude's worried about the soil. Let's get going, though, into that doubleheader. Of course, we missed the first game because of the snow out. Game one, though, doubleheader, Carlos Carrasco on the mound, and he looked good. Pretty good again, which is nice to see, especially in Colorado. I think this was his first ever start in Coors as well. And for a dude who maybe has had some susceptibility to the long ball in the past, he was able to limit really, really well. He definitely was. But if we're talking about game one of doubleheader, I want to first start with Starling Marte. First game off the bereavement list. First at bat off the bereavement list. Hit a 109-mile-an-hour piss missile out of the park. First home run. And we felt like, what, three weeks now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a while. Um, especially because of that time that he did miss. And it was nice to see, one, him back on the field. Two, it seemed like it was really, really tough for him to be back on the field. When they were talking to him after game one, he was super, super choked up and finding it hard to get the correct wording as to what it felt like to be out on the field and what had just happened to him. I mean, the dude has been through so, so much. You feel for this guy so immensely. You saw the emotion on his face even when he like rounded the bases and came into the dugout and was greeted by his teammates. It's kind of amazing to see how much the team has taken a guy like Marte who's only been with the organization for less than three months now and how he's already become kind of this like emotional I won't say an emotional leader but kind of like an emotional spark plug for this team that's always the player he has been always the guy he has been it's always the way people regard him major league baseball but hitting that home run his first at bat off the briefment list just even a hitter missing a week of baseball in general your timing missing a week going through the emotional turmoil that he'd been through this week it was I was so happy for Starling Marte and I thought that was the, one of the best ways I've seen a baseball game begin in a long time second battle of the game first at battle off bereavement list right out yeah the dude's been through just such an insane amount he was explaining too that his mom died at a really young age too and he was basically raised from his grandma when he was nine years old uh, on and then obviously stuff to have with his wife and then his grandma dies almost to the two-year anniversary of when his wife tragically passed away. Like, the guy was going through so much. And I think Buck, even, you know, before and after the game, was saying, like, yeah, if he needs to step away again, like, basically, no one's going to be upset with him. Like, we know everything he's been through. And it's really nice because it does seem like this New York Mets team, like, everyone seems to have each other's back. It seems to be a really tight-knit group, uh, you know, group of guys. So it's good that Starling Marte seems to be at least in this environment because it seems like everyone's very much accepting and making sure that he's going to be okay. And it helped that he also hit a home run in the first inning because it's kind of all we needed as well. Yeah, it's a game where the Mets only gave up, I don't even know, if they, they gave up no runs or one run? I think gave up one run in this yeah, game, but- which was, I think, the first time in 84 games at Coors Field that the Rockies had scored less than two runs in a ball game. So if you want to talk about, you know, the Rockies haven't been great the last few years, but to give up one run to any team in Coors is an impeccable feat. And Carlos Carrasco, like I mentioned at the start of this segment, was kind of clicking from the start. He was pretty good. No, he very much clicked. Carrasco threw five and thirds innings, gave up seven hits, one earned, four strikeouts. A lot of hard hit balls, but this was still Coors Field. Having a game like that in Coors Field is as much as you can possibly hope to give your team. And the big adjustment for Carrasco, something I've talked about a lot during his recent starts on this show, was the fact that he hadn't, in a few weeks, put together two secondary pitches together in a single outing. This start, he did do that. He married the slider and changer for the first time 
in almost an entire month. This is the first time since April 27th, actually, that he threw each of them at least 20% of the time. And it was very clear that he had each of them in their like specified roles doing what they had to do. His changeup location was perfect all night. He was very consistently burying them in the bottom of the zone to the point where the Rockies hitters were just kind of just putting into the ground consistently over and over again. A pitch that they really couldn't do much damage on. And then his slider had four whiffs and four more called strikes. Put those two pitches together with really good fastball location. That's how Carrasco is going to continue to be successful. And as a guy who's now become very quickly the number two man this rotation need more starts like this i'm happy he started off within a tough situation in course field giving us at least some length and very uh, effective yeah even if carlos carrasco every five days right now can go five and a third innings for us that is going to be huge without scherzer and Degrom and even mcgill in this rotation it's immensely important to get that length i know five innings isn't like whoa wow what an inc- what a crazy start he went five innings the minimum to get a win in terms of major league stats but in course on a doubleheader, this was huge. He really nutted up for us, and it was it was it was important. It was really nice. It got us rolling. Along with the fact that on top of the Starling Marte home run, how about our boy Patrick Mazika? He might just be a hitter. Like this, this might be a real thing. Pull back the kimono. I picked up Patrick Mazika in a fantasy league for this up, upcoming week because I have Salvador Perez. He went in the IL with what looks like a short-term injury, and I was like, I need to stream a catcher. It's a 16-team league. It's very deep, so there's not a lot of catchers available. I have to look at who's getting at bats and who's hitting the ball. And Patrick Mazika is playing every other day, basically at this point, and he gets a hit basically every single game. Like he just goes up there with a plan and he does damage. Dude, the defense does not matter in fantasy. And honestly, he hasn't even been that bad defensively behind the plate. Like I think I, I'm not really sure what his calling card is, but he's swinging the bat so much better than I'd ever expect for a guy who swing. Let's be honest, we've said it before, looks a little bit funny. And at the end of the day, like we're not expecting Patrick Mazika to become like this grand catcher who's going to exist here for a decade. Kind of similar to how Tomas Nido had that crazy hot streak in the middle of last year. Yep. Sometimes you just kind of need it, and someone's going to give it to you, especially someone who these major league pitchers don't have very much tape on. I'm sure there's a massive hole in Patrick Mazika's swing. Someone's going to find out within like two or three weeks. But as he's hitting, he's hitting. And again, two-run home run, followed by the two-run double. Carrasco only gave up one earned. This was an easy win. How about our boy Drew Smith, though? Drew, Drew Chains, who's had a little bit of issues the last few starts some long ball susceptibility recently but before we even talk about really what happened in this game how about we talk about drew chains over on twitter right before the game which or right before the series started drew chains was uh he was shooting his shot as they would say you talk about this one you're mr online here i guess yeah i guess i am mr online here so the sports illustrated swimsuit models were at the game that me and you were at Mm -hmm. which was what wednesday night right against the cardinals i believe yeah, Wednesday night before the Thursday day game. Yeah, so we're at the game Wednesday night, and they threw out the first pitch, and one of the models threw out the first pitch to Drew Smith. And Drew Smith was very chumly, as he would be for a young 20-year-old Major League Baseball player. He's got the swag. He's one of the best relievers on this New York Mets team. The guy's feeling himself, and he really took a shot. And he was like, hey, let me know when you're trying to come out to a next Mets game. Just let me know. Like, I'll be here. Gave her the eyes emoji. I started a trend then, which was to continuously brag about how good of a guy Drew Smith was. Earned the Drew Smith follow on Twitter. Dunk, alley-oop, slam dunk, whatever they say. It was a beast uh, beast move there, and everyone jumped on board. I mean, all the Mets personalities on Twitter soon followed after. I believe my tweet was, thanks, Drew, for letting me borrow your Lamborghini to pick up my grandma. Really came in clutch. You're the man. And it just followed with that. So much so that she replied and said, let me know when you need a good luck charm at your next game. Let's go, Drew Smith. Get some. Yeah, I love that, Drew Smith. I mean, we'll see, we'll see how this goes from here. We'll monitor it. We know we know Drew Chains is a bit of a looker, and we know he has the swag and the talent to back it up. And speaking of that talent, clean outing. First time, second time. 
Second, second time, time in a row, second time in a row after the three in a row, he gave up the home run. Very nice. Very easy, uneventful Drew Smith inning as he joins the A-team of the bullpen. Yeah, no, Drew Smith was clean, and then he led us to Lugo, who ended up going two huge innings for us, which is not something that we've seen Lugo do a lot this year. We know in the past he's been able to go multiple innings for us. It was nice to see him go two in Colorado, a place where his best pitch doesn't really work, which is his curveball. And he kind of, it was there was no stress. It was pretty easy for Lugo. He looked really, really good, and it kind of shuts down all those concerns and worries that we had at the start of the season. He just has continued to pitch well since then. Yeah, he's a good pitcher. I mean, I don't think he'll ever be the guy we saw two or three years ago again, maybe, just pitching for all these years with a partially torn UCL after all those years of being snip-snap, snip-snap between the bullpen and the rotation and just becoming older in general, but... Seth Lugo is an important piece of this bullpen. I'm happy to be able to trust him. Yeah, no, he's he's an absolute beast. And the Mets win this game pretty easy. Of course, we have to talk about Francisco Lindor because, you know, everyone hates Francisco Lindor out there except the smart Mets fans. And yes, I am willing to make that shot right now. Uh, Shocker got an RBI single because, well, he's really good. Yeah, he was, he, was all, he was all over the field this series. We'll talk about him a little later, but let's move on quickly to game two as we move through these game recaps. The phrase that we've coined a month ago, there's a poop fest. The Mets have Huge. one of these a series, exactly one every series. And it was. This was just a big poop fest. Hot pile of shit this game. <laughs> it was bad from the start. Trevor Williams got hit hard. He got hit early. And the thing that was weird to me, and I even texted you about it early, was the Mets pitchers in particular seem to be throwing a curveball more than we've seen them ever throw all year long. And as we know, curveballs simply do not work in Colorado. The elevation screws that pitch up, and it seemed like every time there was a nuke hit to the outfield, it was off a curveball this game. That's just Jeremy Hefner's swag, man. Jeremy Hefner does not care about altitude. Jeremy Hefner does not care about air density. Jeremy Hefner says, these are my pitcher's best pitches, and we're going to throw them. I don't give a shit where we are. Was, was it that successful in this game? No, it was not. But like you said, Trevor Williams got hit hard. Then we threw Adonis Medina to the Wolves. He's the one who had to become victim to that seven-run Colorado inning. Jason Shreve came in to try and bail him out. Did not bail him out. The fire kept raging on. This is just a game you lose. This is a game you lose. The Rockies lineup also isn't really bad at all. It's not good, but it's not bad. Like, if you talk about, like, let's just talk about National League lineups. By no means is it going to be, like, those top five. You never go, ooh, the Colorado Rockies. Scared. But you don't see them, and you don't go, like, oh... Uh, the Washington, well, not even the Washington Nationals because they have Juan Soto, but you're not like, oh, this is the Pittsburgh Pirates. Certainly not, but I do think they stack up better than you're giving them credit for against many other lineups in the National League. Mets fans got a firsthand look at how good of a hitter CJ Crone is in this series. The guy's a Beast. freak of nature. He's Chris a Ryan really good hitter. Always takes good at bats, even though the power hasn't really come this year. Shocker, the Giants said the guy was bad, and he actually is bad <laughs> after the Rockies gave him a brink struck. And Jonathan Dawson in the two holes kind of weird, like classic, like stupid team, two hole hitter, but he makes contact with everything. Connor Joe was probably one of the most underrated players in baseball, who if he was playing in a big market, would probably be a household name. He's got the long hair. He hits the piss out of the ball. He's really fast, good defender, does a lot of things well. Ryan McMahon's a good ball player. Good ball player. Brendan Rodgers had a tough start to the season. He's been, he's been coming around getting really hot in the last few weeks. In this game, Brian Sev- Servin, Servin, I think, in his like, second ever MLB start, hit two friggin' home runs. That's kind of what I was getting at here. But we're talking about all these really good Rockies hitters, and of course, the 27-year-old rookie catcher who comes up for one of his first major league games pops two home runs to really extend this game out of reach. But this is kind of just a symptom of when your pitching depth is shot, like you're going to have a game like this. Because Adonis Medina, while he does have good stuff, and he has helped the Mets out a lot this year, no one is going to look twice at Adonis Medina and think that you're sitting on a pitcher who, like, He's going to say be on a playoff roster, all things considered. Like, Jason Shreve, he's pitched very well this year, but there's a reason every year he signs to the Major League Minimum. He's good. 
but he's not really sustainably or consistently good. Jake Reed pitched a clean inning in this one. Joelle cleaned it up at the end, but that was already when the game was out of reach. Personally, I had like a on Saturday like a day party, a break in the middle, then went out at night. So I just took a nice, tried to take a nice seasonable nap in my air-conditioned room, tried to refresh all, everything, and I had dozed off while watching this Mets game in bed. And when I went to sleep, it was like still like four two, and I woke up forty five minutes later. I was like, "What? Eleven? Yeah, what the happened. hell happened? It, happened? it happened so quickly." But I gotta say, like us Mets fans, it is nice to see that everybody on Twitter and even like my dad and myself, even when we were down seven, we're like, "Well, this is Coors, and we did it in Philly. Like this game wasn't over." I mean, it was. We didn't yeah. really put up much of a fight, and that's okay. I don't blame the Mets. Like, by no means is this a game that I'm going to lose any sleep over. You got beat. That happens plenty of times, and especially, like you said, when you have Trevor Williams and Adonis Medina and Chase and Shreve, they by no means beat our best by any stance of that word. This was our B and or C team, which starts another conversation of do we need to bolster that a little bit more. But, I mean, this is kind of what you expect in a doubleheader when your best pitchers aren't going. Also, the team's third doubleheader in 13 days, going back to that Philly series, and then the Cardinals doubleheader from this week. It's just a lot on a bullpen rotation that's already being tested like as far as it can go. And this, again, the doubleheader being in Coors Field, that just exacerbates the problem. I don't think that Adonis Medina or Chase and Shreve are as bad as they looked on Saturday. Just combination of the fatigue and being in Coors Field. These guys are still decent third-string relievers, but if we're going to keep having doubleheaders, it's we're going to get exposed in one of the games, probably. Dude, and honestly, like, even watching the Mets hitters in this game, because I know they only scored, what, like, three or four runs in this one, but they were hitting hard outs all over the place. Like, the Rockies outfielders, they clearly know how to play defense there. They basically play no doubles. They're, like, a couple feet away from the warning track. Anything that's going to bloop in front of them, you'll be able to get a double, but they're not going to let them beat it over their head, because if it hits over their head, it's a home run, basically, in that park. They played a really good outfield. Connor Joe made some plays. Sam Hilliard made a sick play to start the game, throwing out Nimmo at second base. Like, it's just going to happen at some times. I think because we end up winning game three, nobody's freaking out about this game. But this feels like that if we don't win game three and if we don't win the series, people look back at game two and say, how did this happen? Yeah, and also how did it happen? Because the Rockies threw Ashton Gudo in this game, who's just like, if they combined every other pitcher in their rotation and turned them into one person... High block. Yeah, it's just these are guys you should hit off of. It's, I don't know, again, fatigue, travel, the Mets dealing with snow. Like, there's a lot that plays into a team having one bad game in a series. And the best part about this Mets team is they only ever allow themselves to have one bad game per series. Like, that's the best thing. This team shows fight. There was a stat after the game. We're going to talk about game three right now, but you guys already know probably that we won it. The Mets have now won 14 games in a row coming off of a loss. That's sick. That's the longest such streak in Major League Baseball in 11 full years. Wait, that's crazy. 14 in a row Mm -hmm. coming off of a loss? Yeah. Which is also weird because the Mets are, they have such a good record, but they lose so many games, but continue to win after. That's a weird, perfect storm of like, I think it's a stat that matters and also doesn't, but it does a little bit, if that makes sense. No, I think I agree with what you just said 100%. It doesn't matter, but it does matter kind of. And you got to give some credit here to Buck Showalter on that. Yeah. As, as much as every single old person on earth, especially in the media, gives credit for every single good thing the Mets do, a lot of the credit for Buck Showalter has to come with being able to keep these guys mentally sharp on a regular basis. And being able to bounce back after every single loss, that's as good of an indication of that as possible. The only time the Mets lost two games in a row was early in the year when they lost those back-to-back bull, blown bullpen games against the Phillies and who was the one after that that's eluding me, a first game of the series. 
Like first week of April. Washington, yes. Washington, then Philly. Those back-to-back games. Mets only have 15 losses this year. And the last 14, they've won the next game. Like that's how you maintain a 650 winning percentage. No, it's sick. Uh, Buck has definitely done a great job in that aspect. And there's something I want to talk about in game three too, which is just, I think the hustle, this is like another, like such an old man thing to say, but the Mets really do play hard baseball start to finish, no doubt. And that's something that I think we've seen at the start of year with older teams under Mickey Calloway and Luis Rojas that ended up dwindling out towards the end of the year. But it seems like Buck's, you know, leadership along with all the guys on the team, these are guys who we we've seen. They say, never say die. The game's never over till it's over, and they bust their ass on every single play, and you see it all throughout the game, whether it's a ground ball to shortstop and Brandon Nimmo running it out as hard as he can, or even running it out on a walk because he's a little bit of a psychopath, or just the fact that when he hit a line drive to right fielding, Randall Gritchick botched it in this game three, and he was able to get a triple off of that. I mean, those are things that I think winning teams do that can sometimes get lost in the shuffle, and as someone who said, if Buck does stuff well, we will give him plenty of credit, and I know we were a little bit tougher on him when he first got hired I do think a lot of that lies on Buck Showalter's shoulders and I think he's done a great job thus far and a lot of it too you alluded to the Mets last two inexperienced managers another big difference between this team and those teams are the uh, assortment of veterans on the roster like over the offseason the Mets pulled five major league veterans where they combined over 40 years of major league service time like that's not loss on a roster five out of 26 guys like that's a pretty big chunk of your team along with the fact that a lot of this homegrown core has been in the league now for a few years, you're just seeing guys who are more accountable, guys who are willing to work harder, guys who have one goal in mind, and guys who are very able to put things that happen, even in the recent past, behind them and be able to play well afterwards. We still haven't even talked about the actual Game 3, but afterwards there were interviews with Luis Guillorme and Francisco Lindor with the media, and both of them, as away from all the other stuff that they said, we're just talking about, like, we have to have short memories in this game. It's always about the game we're playing. It's not about the game the day before. It's not about the game the day after. We are here to play baseball on the day we're here to play it. And that is such a, just a welcome sign for a ball club. Yeah, it's like, it's very cliche, like the classic, like, well, you're going to, the best hitters fail 70% of the time. But, like, it is true. Even a guy like Jeff McNeil, who I think is almost the epitome for this mindset changing this roster, we remember the last few years, every time he'd get out, he'd slam his helmet, He'd just start dropping F-bombs, and he'd be screaming. This year, the uh, granted, he's playing a lot better, so I think that helps too. But even on his outs where you're like, you got to be kidding me, he's a lot calmer. He's a lot more relaxed. It seems like he's able to put those things behind him. It doesn't come out with him in the field. He knows that he's able to make an impact even if he doesn't always get a hit. And I think that's something that this team really carries on is just let me make an impact any way that I can. And if I don't, it's not the end of the world. Just try to do it another way. These are all the little things that add up to the Mets winning so many more of these 50-50 games, and we've seen them win the last few years. And Sunday was a 50-50 game through and through, a game where you're in Coors Field and it's knotted at zero until the sixth inning. That's truly a toss-up game that anybody could win. And we got to talk about Taiwan Walker, too, because Taiwan, who's a guy that we said, got to keep an eye out for. He's going to be big. He's going to be important here, especially with the two big guys being down in Tyler McGill. And he really, really stepped up this game in Coors, which is never an easy place to pitch. No, he stepped up in a massive, massive, massive way. Gave us seven innings day after a doubleheader ahead of a big three-game set with the Giants with no off day in between. Five hits, two walks, six strikeouts. And that was just, again, to be more cliche, this is like the most cliche episode we've ever had. Exactly what the doctor ordered. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awful. But this is true. Like, Taiwan Walker was so cool in this game he did every single thing possible to put this team in a position to win no rocky reached third base after the first inning against taiwan only time it happened all game and only one of the times they get in scoring position i talked last episode about taiwan walker's split change how that pitch as he's an x-factor now for this rotation over the next six weeks that pitch is the x-factor for him personally 
and it was on the money on Sunday. 31% usage rate, second most pitch he threw in the day, only behind his four-seam fastball on, and ahead of his curveball. Really just used a three-pitch mix this game, and that curveball replaced a slider from last game. Curveball yeah, again? I don't know. Weird. Just, maybe they maybe they had some numbers nobody else has because they kind of did hold the Rockies down this whole series. Yeah, I mean, outside of game two, the Rockies yeah. scored two runs in two games, which doesn't happen. Outside of one inning, they scored eight in three games. Yeah, I mean, like, dude, it wasn't even two runs. They scored one run in two games. They scored 12 runs in three, which is, like, pretty impressive to go into Coors and hold them to four runs a game. Yeah, right? Back to that split change. Had 33% whiffs. That along with his fastball, got a lot of called strikes. Like, he just he just really painted a very good picture to not allow the Rockies to do anything. And even with that, like, his location wasn't pinpoint. Looking, just watching the game, there wasn't really a lot of black. It was a lot of just pitches that weren't being hit, but also weren't not many hit that hard. Like, he just may have found a way to subdue hard contact more effectively than he has in recent years. And this is just a good game against someone I'll say again, is I think an, un- an underrated lineup in baseball. And another big part of this game that helped Taiwan Walker out a lot was the defense really, 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 really stepped up behind him. Taiwan Walker's recipe for success is ground balls, even without the two-seamer or sinker, however you want to classify it. 13 of the 19 balls in play by Rockies hitters on Sunday were on the ground. And the Mets put out their best possible infield defense for him with Luis Guillorme at third, Francisco Lindor at short, Jeff McNeil second, Dom to come in for the end, but just those three right there, Lindor, McNeil, Guillaume. You could just see how much of an impact that A++ infield defense will have on a pitcher like Taiwan Walker. I don't remember what inning it was, but Guillaume made an unbelievable play. The spinorama. Seven. The spinorama, which Gary loves to call it. I, I love that nickname for just a spin throw, but he really made such a nice play. He's so, he's so good. Let's, can we, can we talk about Luis Guillaume? I'm excited to talk about him, or you got something else I am too, but before that happened, that was in the seventh inning. Taiwan Walker's last inning, going around this lineup for a third time, which is a time that any pitcher, especially Taiwan Walker, has an opportunity to struggle. And before that spinorama by Guillaume, Lindor McNeil turned a very, very snazzy double play too, just to keep every single thing at bay here in a game that was very close. The Mets had just taken the lead. Actually, no, the domestic lead in the top of the six. Well, they had the lead still. I it mean. was the lead. The lead was at least new. The lead was very new to the ball game, and Tywin Walker kept him down. It started with that double play, and then Luis Guillorme made the crazy spinorama to end it. And now we're going to talk about it. But Luis Guillorme is so freaking good, and we talked a lot about the Robinson Cano DFA being an op- more of an opportunity for the guys like JD Davis and Dom Smith to get a bat. Really, what that DFA did was turn Luis Guillorme into the everyday player he deserves to be, and he's passed the test with flying colors. I'm going to give credit to our boy, Worthy, NYM. He had that take on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, honestly, give a little credit to us, too. We've been saying this for two years now. We've been banging the Luis Guillorme drum forever, and we said that, like, if you're going to give these at-bats to either Robinson and Cano or Luis Guillorme, it has to be Guillorme. He's a better fielder, and he's a better hitter right now. And he showed it this series. What did he go, like 9 for 14 or 10 for 14? Something crazy. The dude is never going to hit 20 home runs. He's never probably going to hit 10 home runs. If we see him at 5, what a year for Luis Guillorme. But what he is going to do is put the ball in play consistently, have crazy good at-bats. He had it in this game. There was like a 9-pitch at-bat. He ended up getting a hanging slider from Adam Gomber, who's lefty awesome. lefty. That's a... Austin Gomber. Yeah, Adam Gomber. That's not a person. Austin Gomber. Who cares? He sucks. I don't care about Austin Gomber anyway. But he ended up getting a hanging slider on what was either the ninth or 10th pitch of the at-bat, served it right into left field. And that's the kind of stuff that, like, you never see that in war. You never see that in barrel rate. You never see that in a lot of, like, those stats that really do give you the true value of a player. But that's something that he saw more pitches, made him battle, made it more stressful for him, and he ended up winning it. Like, he is such a good player. He's so old school. He's so old school. And Buck even talked about it before the game. 
I think he confirmed Giorme might be his favorite guy on this team. He's like, Giorme has been begging me to get behind the plate. And you know what? If Luis Giorme wants to catch, I'll let him. I'm sure he's great at it. Yeah, like we're at the point where we realize Luis Guillorme can do everything, and this team is worse when he's not in the field. Like, simply put, there's no other way to say it. And you talked about stats not really being so kind to Luis Guillorme, but this year they kind of have. He didn't get a hit for his first, I want to say like 11 or 15, 18 at bat, something like that. And then he shaved the beard, a day that will live in Mets, uh, live in Mets lore probably for a little while as his hot streak continues. Because since Luis Guillorme shaved that beard, he is hitting over 400 with a WRC plus over 200 and an OPS over 1,000. That's sick. That's like three weeks, too. That's a big sample size for Luis Guillaume. Not a sample size to make any of those stats actually indicative of anything, but you just can't sneeze to the fact that he's been not just an above-average hitter. He has been a well-above-average hitter. He's been hitting hilariously at an all-star level for almost a month now it's ridiculous let's get let's start stuff in the ballot box for Luis Guillorme dude I'm all for leading the Luis Guillorme all-star ballot push whatever that does come you gotta also respect anybody who's willing to just say f the physical appearance to get hits I mean we talked about it before that Luis Guillorme shaving the beard that's huge that's huge props there we talked about it even last year remember when Cody Ballinger said I'm shaving my head yeah. because I'm not getting a hit with the lettuce we're like ooh. That's big props for his game. Granted, he still stinks. Yeah. He's still bad. But Luis Guillorme looked like Buzz Lightyear without the beard. That's a lot more of a risk than Cody Bellinger sa- shaving his hair. And he's already but, got the full beard back, so easy. He's hitting, yeah. now he has a beard again. Win-win. Win-win. He's so good. He's, he's He really is. He is such a valuable player to this team, despite not probably ever going to have the greatest stats, even though the sample size you just said was fantastic. We know what it's going to end up looking like probably at the end of the year realistically, but he is better than we've seen. He continues to, I think, surprise people because he's not just hitting singles anymore. He is barreling up the baseball a little bit more, or at least getting hard contact, which is something that kind of eluded him in the past. And at the end of the day, like you say, we know how it's going to look at the end of the season, but there's almost no doubt that he's going to be a guy who's technically going to be better than league average by the end of the year in terms of the rate stats like WRC plus and OPS plus, just simply because of how often he gets on base. And with the glove, the glove too, that's a huge, huge bonus that I don't think it's talked about enough. I'm only talking about his bat right now. Like I think he's yeah. actually an above average bat in this league, and his glove is one of the best infield gloves, I will say, in the entire league. It's just, it is. If you watch him day in and day out, you see he makes every single play. Like He even makes the hard plays look easy, and he makes the impossible plays just look hard. Like He's that good of a defender. It's... It's a marvel. You said last episode, if he played in the 60s, he'd be a Hall of Famer. It's true. Yeah. I think like we probably should have known when our first glimpse of Luis Guillorme was him catching a thrown bat from a Danny Echeverria in the, on the bench as if nothing happened. He was just like, oh, bat. Okay, I got it. Like caught it and was like, here, take it back. The dude's the dude's a wizard. He's He's got something magic going on. He had that 22 pitch at bat last year that they had to change pitchers midway through. Like... He just brings something else to this team that they desperately needed. Something we talked about that we remember like coming into the season, we're like, we don't really have a backup shortstop. We don't really have a guy who can play third base, a guy who can play second base. Like, what do we do if Cano isn't good? What do we do if J.D. Davis isn't competent at third base? You know what we do? We play Luis fucking Guillorme because King Louis is a beast. No, it's all we need. And just continue on this game, tie a little bow on it. Francisco Lindor had the big RBI single to put us ahead originally. And he's also, again, like we say, really good. Since his infamous strikeout swing against Giovanni Gallegos last Tuesday, he's been on base more than half of the time with a 300 batting average for all the batting average heads out there. And he scored he scored six runs in five games. No, dude, you must. I don't think you're watching the right game. Francisco Lindor is good. Is no, that yeah. what you're trying to he's tell really me? Really good, dude. I've I thought everyone on Twitter said that this guy is bad. He's mid. Wait, but did you know he makes 34 million dollars a year? 
Oh, oh, that changes everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dude, five hundred on base percentage, you get thirty-four million dollars a year. How about you hit five hundred home runs in two weeks? What about that? I mean, if you wanted to earn his money, it's exactly what you should do. Yeah, God, He's stealing money There's from the, the New York people, Mark. I I keep seeing more and more tweets every single day of people trying to convince guys that he's mid, and I'm like, it almost this is almost the barometer for baseball IQ right now. Is what do you think of Francisco Lindor? Do you think he's a good player, a mid player, or a bad player? And if you answer anything besides good, I don't think you need to say he's MVP or he's the best shortstop in the league because I think that would be over-exaggerated. I think it would be hyperbole. But if you think he's anything less than good, I probably don't want to hear anything you have to say about baseball ever again. These are like those lies that get perpetrated. This would happen more before the internet, but those like little rumors that would cross like middle schools across the, the nation yes. like 15 years ago where people know things, but no one can really trace them back. Like when everyone heard that Marilyn Manson used to used to give himself oral sex by taking <laughs> out a rib, like that was just this rumor that like perpetuated through the early 2000s school hallways and never went away. And no one really knew how or why it got there, but it always existed. For some reason, the people across America think Francisco Lindor is bad at baseball, and it's just not true. No, it's it's patently incorrect, like we said last time. He's a good ball player. 500 on-base percentage over last, you know, six or seven games. Man, would really hate to have that on this roster. It would really... No. He, he must, uh, he must really be hole? killing this... Yeah, he must be killing this team. Well, we didn't even mention it, but this was another game where Buck Showalter actually put the Mets' four best hitters in the first four spots of the lineup. Of course... Pete's still fourth, even though he's probably the second best hitter in this team or the first best hitter in this team, because you got to give Buck Showalter one non-analytics decision to of make course. on his own. And he's like, yeah. you see that strong chubby guy over there that hits the home runs? That's my first <laughs> baseman. He's my cleanup hitter. No ifs, ands, or buts. Have you noticed this? The last few games, too, Buck has said F the lefty-righties thing. He's just putting guys where he wants them now. I think the Mets had like four righties in a row today. Yeah, but they also didn't do that top of the order because they went Nimmo, Lindor, McNeil, Pete still. Yeah. So that is still no. lefty righty, lefty righty. Or lefty lefty switch, lefty righty. Yeah, it seems like he's a little bit less, you know, sticking to the has to be lefty righty every spot in the order. Maybe also because they knew they were playing against the Colorado Rockies and a bullpen yeah, that's not really one to fear. I don't know about yeah. the lefty righty specialist coming out of his bullpen. And we're also in Coors Field. I don't really care as so much about lefty righty here. That's a good point, too. Yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't think about you also have to think about the team and be like, it doesn't really matter. I, who... Who pitches in the Rockies bullpen? I really they pitched this series, and I don't even think I can name more. I, Justin Lawrence, I think, is one. Daniel Bard, that should be a game. Can you name the Rockies bullpen? You got another name for me besides those two? Robert Stevenson. Ooh, I forgot about him. He's actually kind of good. Mm-hmm, he's kind of good. Uh, past that, I don't even have much anymore. Uh, oh, Estevez. Ash- Ashton Godot. Ashton Godot. Isn't he technically? Isn't he starter kind of? Uh, he's horrible. I don't. Yeah. He's terrible. I don't care what he is. <laughs> years and years of this team developing pitchers, and they still haven't gotten one. Yeah, no, literally haven't gotten a single one. It's shocking. And nobody, like we said, has ever left Coors and been good either. No, it's just they they, they, they don't just like make it tough to play when you're there. They break you mentally, physically, everything about it. That's what it has to be. It has to be a mental breaking point of like, man, I'm so fucked up from playing here. I'll just never be good. There was a little bit of drama, though, in this game. Adovino got a little bit into trouble. He was able to get out of it, though, with the help of Joelli because, well, Joelli rocks, and he's great, and also... Joelli rocks? I, I, was that a pun? Oh, yeah, because he was sitting on the... I didn't even think about that. <laughs> he was that. sitting he was in sitting the, rocks. the rocks. He said a great place to enjoy her Red Bull. When I saw that picture on Twitter, I didn't think it was real. I thought that was like a meme. You know, like yeah. the meme of like Bernie Sanders sitting and they would like move him around places. 100%. That's what it felt like to Wait, me. Wait, did you even see the, what was, 
Mama McGill compared the way he was sitting to the Bernie Sanders meme. Literally. I didn't even see that. I really? was at a graduation party. She today. was like, that looks like Bernie, the picture of Bernie with the mittens. That's awesome. Yeah. Mama McGill coming to the rescue. One mind. But uh, I would I would imagine the same people that think Joelle still stinks are also very, there's got to be like a Venn diagram, a lot of overlap with One Lindor circle. being bad. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. But I mean, I've, you know, got into trouble. He got out of it. Joelle, the king of the one pitch, one pitch out. He just comes in one pitch. See you later. Get to the bench. Get the showers guy. And then. Edwin Diaz got another clean save, and that's a series. Did you know this? They were zooming in on Edwin's back cleat. So as a right, yeah. that was his right cleat. Edwin's just pitching with a hole in the top of his shoe from his Massive drag. hole. Like, he has to be fucking up his toe. He basically doesn't throw the ball from the mound. Like, he's <laughs> he the way, which honestly could make sense as to why maybe his fastball, like, I know he throws 100 still, but why he gets so much swing and misses, like, the perceived value, that's or perceived velocity, that's talked about a lot with Jake DeGrom because he gets such good extension, and that his 101 looks even faster. Maybe Edwin Diaz, who throws the ball from, I don't know, 55 feet away, it seems like, when he eventually releases it, maybe that plays into also why he's so nasty, because He's not throwing the ball from the mound. He's not even close. I think that's a good place for us to move into the mailbag portion of this episode. Something we like to do every once in a while is just take your guys' questions on social media. Make sure you're following us at MetsedUp. So we just ask, go ahead, give us your thoughts, give us your opinions. And I feel like a lot of the questions were relatively similar, so we will do our best chance to shout out everybody. We're we're not going to be able to. There was like 50 or 60 replies, so it's just simply impossible. But... We're going to go ahead and give some shouts to some people and answer your guys' questions. And the first one, to me at least, I think is going to come in from Ryan at RJMurphy72. What would a Bassett extension look like? Because if you guys didn't catch the news today, uh, the Mets and Chris Bassett avoided arbitration. They agreed on a deal outside of the courtroom for about $8 million, I think, this upcoming year with a mutual option in 2023 for $19 million. I know, James, I mentioned it to you earlier and you were like, eh, the mutual option doesn't really matter to me. I'm excited. I think that means that there's a good chance Bassett comes back. And at $19 million, it's pretty cheap. Yeah, I think the mutual option is more than anything else, just like a respect thing between the Mets and Bassett. Usually mutual options aren't something that are, they're not something that are very often picked up because there's just so many moving parts in the mutual option that's very easy for that to fall apart by the end. Really what the mutual option looks like to me is almost like a respect enough to not go through the qualifying offer process. But it is very positive that Chris Bassett did accept this deal from the Mets with at least an expectation, whether it's tangible or not, to be back next season. And I thought that what he said about signing the deal was almost more important than the deal itself, saying that this team being so good, he didn't want to waste time arguing about whether they're going to wind up being pennies on the dollar for what this contract's actually worth. He said, this team is good, and I want to be on the field doing as much as we can. Yeah, which I love. I love. I mean, me and you have both been saying we want Chris Bassett back next year. We think he's a really good pitcher. We've been impressive what he's done so thus far. I think there's a very realistic chance that we extend him coming up after the season. I know we have the DeGrom contract to worry about as well, but Bassett, Good pitcher, not going to cost you a lot. I think it'd be a no-brainer. Yeah, for sure. I just, this is a guy who you want on your team, as far as Willie does on the field and Willie does off the field. All right, now let's go to our guy, Jenny Metz, at Jenny Metz on Twitter. Which starting pitchers slash DHs do you think we should target? So we're going to pick one from him. We'll talk about you know both sides here, but let's, let's talk about starting pitchers. We mentioned it a little bit last episode. There's some obvious big names that we can mention. Luis Castillo, Frankie Montas, the names you've been hearing all year. But I know, James, you've definitely done a little bit of digging into who could be maybe guys on expiring contracts here. Give me some names. What do you got for me? Excite very, very little bit of digging. And I have bad news. It's not going to excite you very much. If the Mets want to get one of those aces, you're going to have to part away with Ronnie Mauricio plus, I'm assuming, if not Brett Bailey plus, depending on which team will value either of those guys more, which will be a lot for a guy you're not guaranteed to extend. And we kind of saw the the harm in acquiring rentals the deadline last season after signing Javier Baez, not making a playoff push, 
push than now watching P. Crow Armstrong blossom in low A. It's only low A, though, so I'm not going to hold it that much yet. If this gets to double A, then we, as Mets fans, we can start to be worried that we let another potential superstar center fielder go. But as far as guys the Mets can trade for, I know the Red Sox have gotten hot over the last week. But the name Nathan Navaldi is the one really striking me the most right now as a guy who is a rental from a team who probably will be selling and will be happy to get out from under some money. Nathan Valdi is someone who has been very consistent over the last few years after a rocky beginning to his career in Tommy John surgery. He throws the ball hard. He has multiple secondary pitches. He gets strikeouts. He's pitched in a very difficult division and a very difficult ballpark with good results. You're going to switch both of those and get those much better very quickly. Nathan Valdi is the kind of guy who could act as something of a lightning rod if he was acquired by a contender. And I'm sure a lot of teams are going to be signing up to try and get a shot at Nathan Valdi. So he also, even as a rental, with a history of arm trouble, will also not come cheap. Yeah, and he was one of the guys who I thought was like one of the more underrated pitchers coming into the season this year. A guy who quietly was one of like the 10 best pitchers maybe maybe in baseball last season alone. He looked really, really sharp. He doesn't walk anybody. Like you said, pounds the strike zone, got good stuff. And we know in big games, Nathan Evaldi shows up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, that's one of those things. This is our narrative episode, I guess. So that will say it might not be true. He had that one great game that I'll always remember for the rest of my life. And it's given him this tag forever, which is good for Nathan because there's a lot of other pitchers who have done far more in far bigger circumstances who have never gotten that kind of recognition. But Evaldi is a guy who I think could be wildly important to any contender and i'm sure the mets have already inquired about him but otherwise guys on one-year deals there's only really two other that stick out in my mind one is chad cool who we know is not very good but he's not cool. no chad cool is not cool but he has a very good slider it's one of the better sliders in baseball but like it's not that exciting besides that if you acquire chad cool you probably can't expect a traditional starting pitcher you'll be getting another guy who kind of blends into that two to four inning role that we've seen taking baseball by storm over the last 18 months now also this new uh new brave world for the mets we're gonna see a lot more of those kind of guys but the other name i found interesting who has completely eluded me so far this season i totally forgot about because he was on the ILs. wade miley someone who makes a little bit of money so he probably won't have the most acquisition cost and also plays on the cubs who are not a good team and who I'm not going to tell you that Wade Miley's a world beater by any means, but Wade Miley does that Bassett thing where he'll throw a ton of pitches, keep the ball down in the zone, allow a lot of soft contact, and pitching in a place like City Field with the Mets defense, I think Wade Miley could be a worthwhile innings eater for this team for a portion of the second half. I've seen a couple of people throw these names around, and I know what the answer's going to be. I know what my answer is, but uh, Stroman, Cindergaard, little reunion there? Absolutely not. After the things that we've yeah, no. heard from people about those two guys with the Mets, there's no way either of them are ever coming chance. back. Yeah, we're going to put those to rest. Uh, Thor, one, the Angels are competing. They're not getting rid of one of their premier pitchers, who's one of their best pitchers in their rotation. And two, Stroman might just not be a good fit with this team, it seems like, at the end of all things, that Stroman maybe isn't cut for the New York Mets right now. No, and it does seem like this locker room, again, correlation is not equal causation, but those two guys are not here anymore, and this locker room seems to be much more focused, concentrated, and together. But I'm not going to just say that's for sure the reason why, but that happened and this happened. Otherwise, guys, we're going to be pitching the rest of this year and two-year deals Kyle Hendricks who a lot of Mets fans are talking about who I just think I think you're if you get Kyle Hendricks you're kind of paying more for Wade Miley while probably still getting Wade Miley-ish results don't you feel that way yeah, I mean, like he's been he's been pretty bad now for it seems like the last two years. Yeah, like, I know but he kind he's of also, fixed things a little bit last year, but he's really bad this year. He is, but he's also just like not that bad. And the Cubs pitching development has kind of only been invented in the last like eighteen months, so. They quickly have moved from a pen and pencil team to a team that now is decent, but with developing. But we also know with Kyle Hendricks too, though, that in the past, like you watch him pitch and you go, "Man, really unimpressive." It was always like one of those things where it's like 
He gets the job done, but you don't really know why, because nothing is particularly good. Well, kinda, like the change, yeah, I you guess. know why? It's because he throws pitches with pinpoint accuracy, and he tunnels all of his pitches very well. Like his changeup and his sinker look exactly the same coming out of his hand, but they move in slightly different directions at different speeds, and that's how he keeps hitters off balance. That's how he did it for so long. I'm never gonna chastise Kyle Hendricks because he did it so well for so long. I'm never gonna say a guy like that was smoking mirrors for like six full years. It's clear yeah. he has taken a step back. So if you like, if you call the Cubs and Miley and Hendricks at the same price or within a relatively similar range, I'd probably opt for Hendricks. But I think that if you're getting a discount on Miley, which I'd expect, just for having less of a track record and also being... I mean, Miley was so good last year, but it was I don't, it was a really weird feeling. And he's had one good start, one bad start off the aisle so far this year. But I think those two guys are people to focus on. And I think it's a good chance the Mets inquire on each. Otherwise, other guys in two-year deals... Mike Miner from the Cincinnati Reds, who has not pitched yet this year. He was acquired. That, was it the Amir Garrett trade in one of the Reds' yes. vexing moves from late in the offseason, the second stage of the offseason? He's a guy I've always been a fan of. He has good stuff. He had that funny 200 strikeout season with Texas a few years back. His slider's still good. His fastball's still about average. He's someone who you bring him to a big park like this with Jeremy Hefner. I have a feeling that he would be effective immediately. Jordan Lyles is another guy who's similarly unimpressive, but will just be okay in a big park like this to eat innings. He will perform a valuable service if this Mets team really needs it coming down the wire here. Same with Brad Keller, someone who is the least exciting guy I could ever even think of, but he still throws hard and has multiple off-speed pitches that he throws. They're not the most effective things in the world, but he's someone who you bring him to an organization who can actually develop a pitcher, and you might get a gear for Brad Keller that the Royals have always searched for. I think a lot of the Mets pitching problems or necessity for trading for a pitcher too comes with if DeGrom and Scherzer are ready to go. I think if those guys are ready to go in the month of July and we get them before the you know trade deadline, I don't think it's as much of a like, we need to get somebody because we don't have anybody. If those guys come back and they look all right, I think we'll be relatively, I don't want to say passive in terms of the pitching market at the deadline, but I don't think there will be like calling for Luis Castillo and Frankie Montas like there is right now. I don't know. I think there still might be just because with older pitchers like those two who have already been injured this year you can't ever be too careful and if you want to win a world series you need guys like that like if castillo and Montes are made available you can get them from mauricio plus a little bit you have to pull that trigger just because like you want to win a world series like those are the types of guys you need on your roster to do it and as much as i hate to say it we can't really count jacob Degrom right now like we're all expecting to be back yeah. and everything is coming out is positive and we're all as Mets fans wishing on this magical DeGrom second half but getting anything from Jacob DeGrom in the second half of this year will be a victory in and of itself and I think that they need to have the infrastructure built in to be ready to face a world without him for the entire year and I think even with Max Scherzer coming back off of a significant oblique strain and Tyler McGill still being on the IL with ominously no worry about him whatsoever I think that no matter what happens the Mets are going to look to acquire a pitcher it just depends on the caliber of pitcher that comes in another guy who I think is interesting who will be available who's been talked about a lot more recently is Tyler Molly also from the Reds he's a guy who pitches so well on the road but he's such a fly ball pitcher that when he gets in Cincinnati he can't get people out because the fly balls that go out that are just caught for outs in road parks are often over the fence in the Great American Ballpark like, for the last two years, his ERA at home is over four, and on the road, it's about, like, two and a half. Would love to see him in That's the It'd be great, especially Reds have good pitching development, Mets have good pitching development. Molly's always had great stuff. Took him a little longer to get to the bigs, but now that he's gotten there, he's proven to be durable, he's proven to be effective, and he's proven to be consistent. He's a guy who I think, on a two-year deal, you'd probably be able to pry away from the Reds. It will probably cost more than you'd like it to cost. I don't know if it'd be Mauricio range, but there's a chance, honestly, maybe, which 
it would be a tough pill to swallow. I don't know how I feel about it now at all. You have to ask me in a month because these trades also, yeah. as much as all these Mets fans were asking us about trades, trades like this just don't happen in May. They very rarely no. happen in June as well. Like it is a seller's market right now, and you, like we said last episode, are going to be taken advantage of if you try to enter it right now. And with that, I think the Mets are going to do every single thing they can to exhaust their internal options before they approach trade candidates. Besides a guy like Chad Cool, who likely yeah. won't cost much and even won't be that good when you get him. Yeah, it's like a Rich Hill pickup. Yeah, like it's not he's significantly worse than Rich Hill. How dare you say that about Rich Hill in this program? No, but I'm saying the idea of the package that we're giving up is that it's going to be nothing for sure. But again, how dare you? I, let's get Rich Hill. He's not okay. one you deal with the Red Sox. I think he, I, he, I think he really likes being in. Boston. I think so too. Really but tell do. him to catch, catch two months in New York with this great team. You, Rich Hill and Buck Showalter. Imagine oh, being a fly in the room the with those two age. in the room. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're about the same age. I'm sure they could talk about what it was like to watch black and white TV. Yeah. Like, but like with that, you're going to see Thomas Apucky this week. We're going to mention briefly in the Giants preview. He is expected to pitch Wednesday's game. David Peterson's coming back for Monday's game. Like These are the guys who we're going to see. Like I said before, Mike Montgomery. You're going to get a taste of Trevor Cahill. We're going to see Yancy Diaz back again. The Mets are going to do every single thing they can to make improvements internally. Now, on the hitting side, this is something that I think a lot of people are talking about too, the DH situation, because Dom and JD, they're struggling. I know we talked about JD having like the highest ex-WOBA. He's in that group of guys where are like, that, it's crazy because those are some of the best hitters in baseball, but he just continues to not really perform well right now. And I, I don't think game three really helped either because he hit into a double play and just kind of struggling a little bit. What are some DH options I think the Mets could pull in? This one came from Jack Haim or Jack Heim. A bunch of other people asked this question as well. Mike Davis, um, a lot of people were getting involved. I think, I mean, we saw one guy that I think would be a lot of fun to bring in to play the DH spot, CJ Crone. That dude just mashes. Yeah, CJ Crone would be sick. The only problem with CJ Crone is that the Mets just don't really need another first baseman who can't play the best defense, but if he's just going to DH every single day, that's fine. And there's always those people who claim, like, the guy leaves course and never be able to hit again. But that's proven to be incorrect over countless and countless examples of the last like five to ten years. It's just so funny how when a hitter leaves scores, he'll never be able to hit. When a pitcher leaves scores, he's going to get better, and it's just the complete Yeah, opposite. it's never ever been true in either direction. But he is someone who's interesting. I also just think the Rockies are so confused themselves that they think they're competing <laughs> still, and they want their MVP caliber first baseman in the lineup every day, which I'm sure Dick Montfort yeah. thinks that. But otherwise, trade pieces. Guys on one-year deals, you have David Peralta, who is doing kind of that same J.D. Davis thing where he is hit, like making very good quality of contact, and he's another guy. He's a very wily veteran. That'd be a great addition to this clubhouse. He'd fit in with a lot of these guys here. He's better than the Mets' fourth outfielder now, I think. Because technically, I guess technically that's Jeff McNeil, but he's also basically just the starting second baseman. So you bring yeah. Peralta in, I think he just raises the floor of this roster a lot. Similar to Peralta, you have Tyler Naquin from the Reds. He's just a good hitter. His, his stats are probably a little bit inflated right now, being in that band box, Great American Ballpark. But... He does a lot of things well, plays good defense. He's a guy who just, he's a good piece to have on a roster. Similar guys to this who are like not sexy, but also useful. Chad Pinder, Robbie Grossman. But like, are these guys really, are these guys guys really better than Daniel Pocket and uh, Nick Plummer? I don't know. Colin Moran, who's just blech, terrible. Ben Gamble, who actually draws a lot of walks. He has some power. I think Gamble's at least a guy who would be a good bench bat on this team. I think he's a lefty too, Gamble, right? Yeah, So that'd be a useful addition. And then there's a couple more interesting names out there. I just don't know how available they will become. Mitch Hanniger is a guy who, on an expiring deal, probably could be had as someone who would be able to slot into the DH spot and play it well, as the Mariners have a lot of outfield depth and not really a good place to put everybody if they're not competing for the wildcard spot by the deadline. Andrew Benintendi in a similar ilk. He's, like, he's never what he should have been, but he is a good baseball player, 
at the end of the day, like he will make a baseball team better. And the name everyone's talking about right now is J.D. Martinez, which he would make the Mets DH spot better. And it just depends on how much money the Mets are willing to fork over for half of a year of AARP Martinez. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely not that J.D. Martinez that we once saw. But yeah, he's better than what we have. He's still a very, very good hitter. I, ca- I kind of like that uh, that Mitch Anniger call. I kind of like that. That could be fun. But there's also a world where the Mariners are right back for in sure. it, And they aren't in dead last in the AOS like they are currently. That's why it's very difficult to have these conversations in May. But of course, we're asking listener mailback. People want to hear about traits. People want to hear about the fun stuff. People want to hear about Frankie Montes, yes. J.D. Martinez, all this cool shit. Hanniger is a guy who, if this the if the Mariners go thirteen and sixteen again in June, like by the time July rolls around, you're like, can we really make this interesting? And even if we can make it interesting, do we really want to? Seeing that most of our big pieces are really a year away from being monsters, a guy like yeah. George Kirby, Matt Brasher got another shot, Julio Rodriguez, with all those guys continue to ascend. Kelnick maybe figures it out as the team continues to ascend. You have to wonder how if they can get a legitimate piece for Mitch Haniger whether or not they would do it. Also, just because Jerry DePoto is the king of trades. He, the guy, yes. the guy's gone a couple months without a trade. I know he's dying to make one. So he's someone who hasn't been talked about very much because the team is expected to stay competitive. But there's a chance they don't. And I think he'd be very interesting and fit very well as a right-handed power bat. I know this doesn't fit, you know, trying to find like an outfield piece by any means, but I'd love Daniel Vogelbach to be a, p- a piece for the Mets. Yeah, I mean, Vogelbach would be fun. You slide him at DH. He'll sit against the tough lefties, and he'll be just a shit ton of fun. And he gets on base, he hits nukes, and he's a big, large man, and you know everyone's going to have fun. There's another him. potential Lilov hitter to mix in with the Mets. <laughs> Which is also so crazy. Imagine going from Brandon Nimmo to Daniel Vogelbach in a game, like hitting leadoff. That's no, but imagine how sweet this line would be with a guy like Vogelbach with crazy power and wicked on base skills as someone who's hitting like 6th, 7th, or 8th. It'd be whole lineup. It'd be awesome. Yeah, so like, like Gamble does that too. Gamble always has good at-bats. Gamble has enough game power to get the ball out enough times where it's going to make an impact. These are good hitters that who the Mets are going to be targeting, probably more so than a J.D. Martinez. Similarly to how yeah, they're going to no. look at guys like Keller and Miner over guys like Montes and Castillo. Yeah, they're not sexy. They're not fun, but that's probably realistic. And you know, we guys like to keep we like to keep it real with you guys out here on the Messed Up Podcast. I think we'll do two more questions here. This is a quick one. Michael Mandelstam. Hi, I listen to every podcast. Do you think someone on the New York Mets could win a batting title like McNeil or Brandon Nimmo? I'll answer this one. I do. I do think Jeff McNeil can win a batting title. I think Brandon Nimmo, the way we're seeing him play, it's probably a little bit tougher. But I think these guys can probably hit 300, and in the current state of baseball, I think anybody who hits 300 kind of has a chance to be in that conversation. No one's going to hit 350 for a full year. If you can hang around that 310, 320 mark, you have a good chance to win the batting title. I think both of those guys could be there this yeah, year. Yeah, otherwise, who in the National League are the big like batting title competitors anyway? Like The AL has Tim Anderson and Wander Franco. I don't think any hitters on this Mets team are going to have a higher batting average than those two guys. But from the NL, like who is the guy who's, who's like going to wear that crown? Like right now in the NL, Machado's hitting 360, Goldschmidt's hitting 340, Crone's hitting 330, and that's and Hosmer's hitting 324. So get rid of Hosmer. <laughs> I think Crone could probably hit around 300, especially but playing not really. Crone's career batting average is way lower than that, significantly lower than yeah, that. But, but it's in Coors. Yeah, even so last year's full season in Coors, he wasn't even close to 300. He got hurt, though, too, at one point But that's as well. what CJ Crone does. He'll do that again. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that's probably that's why no one ever wants yeah. him, because he gets hurt at some point. Goldschmidt could definitely hit 320, no problem, with the way that he's playing. And I think Machado could probably also hit 322. I mean, those are some of the best hitters in the league. It's not going to be easy, but I think there's a world where the Mets hitters definitely are in this conversation. Yeah, I think that Jeff McNeil does enough, puts the bat on the ball consistently enough with quality contact to compete for a batting title don't forget our boy Luis Guillorme yeah Luis Guillorme give him <laughs> give him 150 games who even knows at this point he could probably just win the MVP okay last question here and this one I think is something we need to get ahead of here because I've seen it on social media a little bit too oh, much oh I know exactly where you're going it, it, 
the meme's dead, guys. The meme is dead. But I'll I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up. You win. Aaron Vaknin. At Aaron Vaknin. Would you even entertain the idea of bringing Bartolo Colon back? And if not, where would you look for pitching help outside the organization? We answered part two. Part one, would I even entertain the... No, no are you guys like kidding it. me? Bartolo Colon was throwing 86 miles an hour, what, four years ago? The last time he appeared in a game <laughs> for the Mets? Like, I don't understand what this absolute fascination with keeping keeping this guy alive here like i love big sexy i love him he was great he was an awesome awesome meme but in two days we're recording this on the 22nd on the 24th you'll be turning 49 years of age to which we know may or may not be true for bartolo cologne there's a good chance bartolo lied about that just like he lied about having multiple families all over the place i mean the guy is by no means truthful he took steroids everyone forgets about this the dude is a well-known not telling the truth guy is a well-known liar. I don't want Bartolo Colon back. Let him pitch in the old-timers game. That'd be great. That's the only way I want to see him back on City Field is if he's pitching old-timers day. Otherwise, Bartolo should not get on the mound for the New York Mets as a major league pitcher. If that's happening, shit's hit the fan. We're in trouble. Yeah, and Mets Twitter's fascination with this year after year just never continues to amaze me. Like I don't understand why Mets fans are so critical of some and so loving of others. Like Bartolo Colon is just... There's no possible way that Bartolo Colon would show up right now in a Major League Baseball uniform and be very effective. Like, there's literally, there's no way at all. And the fact that this comes up every single year, like, is it going to be like 2027 and a 53 Bartolo Colon is going to throw a bullpen session and Mets fans are going to be like, bring back Big Sexy, we need innings. It's crazy. Since leaving the Mets in 2016, 2017, 2018, the last two times he played, it was with Atlanta, Minnesota, and Texas. He has a 6.13 ERA in 290 innings pitch, so it's a very good sample. A FIP at 5.34, a WHIP at 1.465. He strikes out five batters per nine. His K rate is just a little bit over, I think, 15% in that time. His walk rate's great because he doesn't walk anybody, but you wouldn't either if you threw 84 <laughs> miles an hour. And he also gives up 11 hits per nine and two home runs per nine. He was bad when he left the league. He's going to be even worse if he comes back now. The good thing is, I don't think that this has any legs whatsoever. I don't think there's a even chance. The, the Mets are way too smart. This is something that the Wilpons would do if the Mets were in last place. And we're like, how could we get some free money? Let's sign Bartolo Colon and get some butts and seats. But the Coens and the Mets organization is way too smart. I think if you put this on the table of anybody who had any sort of importance in the Mets organization, you lose your job immediately. I think there's a better chance that you or I gets called to pitch for the Mets ahead of Bartolo <laughs> Colon. I'm not even kidding. I'm not trying to be facetious. There is just 0.00% chance that any Major League Baseball team gives Bartolo Colon a crack at a starting job. It's It would be one of the most shocking stories of this generation, baseball really or otherwise. Would, a guy who's been out of the league for four years, who's 50 years old, pitching again. Like, he wasn't even that good when he left the league. It's not like he left the league as Justin Verlander, who's doing crazy stuff. And these stuff. tweets get so many likes and so many retweets every time. It's ridiculous. It's just this easy, easy internet clout. We'll tweet, so- we'll tweet something out from the Mets Up podcast tonight. I bet you it gets over Oh, that's like a likes. joke? Yeah, we should. Yeah, so if you guys hear this now, check back to the Mets Up Twitter, see how many likes it gets. Maybe we'll even do an Instagram post and see what the traction is. It might be one of our most liked posts that aren't like, you know, one of our viral videos. That yeah, we either tonight we should we should plan it for like tomorrow afternoon. Like yeah, or, okay. Monday, we, Monday we'll, afternoon. It's right around the time you guys are listening to this, hopefully. Check out our Instagram, check out Twitter, check out social media. We're going to do a fake, stupid Bartolo Colon post and just see what it does. Yeah. And you guys will be in the joke, so enjoy it. Yeah, in on the joke. And I think that's a great way to end the mailbag. 
Let's wrap it up here for episode number 94 with a preview of the San Francisco Giants series. Heading out to San Francisco for three against the Giants, who I don't want to say are struggling, but by no means are playing particularly great baseball right now. They're definitely struggling. They just got mollywopped in a Sunday game against the Padres, lost 10-1, to and they ended up actually getting swept in that series out in San Diego, losing three consecutive games to the Padres, giving up eight runs in one game, then losing two to one. And like I just said, losing 10 to one on Sunday. So this is a team that is reeling more so than we've seen them reel in recent years. We still know how talented this roster is. We still know how talented this front office is and their coaching staff is. So I don't doubt that the team's going to stay down for long, even still struggling at 22 and 18 for the games into the season. But the Mets this series, more so than many others we've seen recently, are going to be at a firm pitching disadvantage throughout, and that is something that worries me as a team who hasn't lost many series. What are the pitching matchups looking like for this series? Monday night in a game that it, will build, it seems like it'll be hard to win. David Peterson making his return to the major leagues against Alex Cobb. Tuesday, this is going to be a very good one, one that all baseball fans should pay, pay attention to. Chris Bassett versus Logan Webb. And yep. a Wednesday, nice uh, happy hour game, if you will, 345 start time. Thomas Apucky making his return after miss, coming up last year being ineffective and missing the rest of the season with injury against Jacob Junis, who I've shouted out on this podcast a few times randomly, just doesn't throw fastballs. It's it's a marvel no. to watch. So that's, yeah, it's going to be an interesting series to watch. Two teams that are good teams. One's not playing particularly well. One is, but as we know, the Mets pitching is always going to be the question mark for the next six to eight weeks as we move forward here. We handled the Giants pretty well at home. Different looking team a little mm-hmm. bit, especially on the pitching side, but... I don't want to say I'm nervous about the series because I don't really feel that way really right now with the Mets, with how we've been playing and how this team has been. But it's definitely not going to be an easy one. I don't care how bad the Giants struggle. They are way too talented to just be like, oh, we'll walk all over this team. I mean, you mentioned three pretty solid pitchers right there that they're going to throw out against us. Two, two very solid easy. pitchers and one guy who's just trying something. Guy oh, who's yeah. been good in the past. Jacob yeah. Judas. But Alex Cobb and Logan Webb are very, very good pitchers and should not be trifled with. Yeah, and of course, we get to see Wilmer Flores, who's one of the few guys on the Giants that are swinging the bat particularly well. Darren Ruff has also been scalding hot, I think, the la- in the month of May. That's all coming Keep up against the lefty him. on Monday night. That's going to be a big game for Darren Ruff, all my daily fantasy players. Yep. Jock Peterson, Mikey Strem. Peterson's really all the guys cooled off expect. after his hot uh, first three weeks of the season. Yeah, but I mean, all the guys that you expect, though, will still be there, still be dangerous. So they're, just, they're not really missing anybody. Like, Brandon Crawford's kind of the one guy this year where you're like, oh, he's just not that good because he's 100, but he might he might turn it up. Brandon Belt is still out. Evan Longoria came back off the IL last week. No, Belt's back. I, thought, I saw earlier today Belt was still on the IL. Is he coming back for tomorrow? He is not listed on the IL on Baseball Reference right now. No, so. Maybe he went on today. Maybe, yeah, maybe he went on today. I don't know. I'm definitely not up to date with my Giants roster moves. Yeah, three hours ago, placed on the IL. <laughs> I just, I, oh I just God. moved in there in the fantasy league. I figured. But, I mean, there's honestly not that much else to break down about this series. We saw them a month ago. There's not that many new storylines from them. They're just, they just really annoying. We're gonna have the PTSD from going there last year and getting our asses handed to us. But you gotta exercise those demons. Usually, the Mets go to San Fran and they play poorly. You have to go there this time. Be prepared for the challenge. Second leg of a West Coast trip. And play well with a big series coming up next weekend at home against the Phillies. Different team, too. Different team than in the past. We have all the confidence of this Mets team, and they should put together a very competitive series and hopefully continue to win series like we've seen them do all year long. James, any other comments here before we wrap it up? Oh, good, man. Ready to get his air conditioner back on. I'm sweating. Yeah, let's wrap it up here. You guys don't know this. This has taken us an hour and 35 minutes to record. Uh, There's been planes, trains, motorcycles, dirt bikes, people with loud music. Wherever James lives is crazy loud, along with the fact that it just gets crazy hot. I mean, I have air conditioner. It works. It's just loud. I can't record with it in the background. So we took a nice little 20-minute break so I could recool my room only to get hot again, de-sweat a little bit. 
Yeah, oh man, it's so hot down here. My parents' nice AC basement back in New Jersey. It's tough. Uh, all right, sure. Keep bragging. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for watching. Make sure you're following us on all our social media at Messed Up YouTube channel, Messed Up Podcast. You'll be able to watch the video version of this. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, drop us a rating, drop us a review. It really does help us out. Follow me on Twitter at Giraffe Mark. Follow James at Jeter Had No Range. And that's where we'll wrap it up, guys. We'll see you on the next episode of the Messed Up Podcast, episode number 95. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time.